that, quote, it is a reality that many Christians do not understand what is in them until after they have become a Christian, end quote. And this was especially true for me after I was saved. As I've said before, I was saved as an adult, and I came out of a, relig a religion in my youth um, where I was familiar with terms like Trinity, uh, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son of God. But the Jesus I was familiar with was associated most closely in his relationship with his mother, Mary. You know, some in that religion were even beginning to refer to Jesus' mother as a co-redemptrix. And so it was even after I was saved, it wasn't until Sue and I joined a uh, very basic and simple Bible study in our neighborhood that I actually had my eyes open to the fact of the deity of Christ. And that was my introduction to the extremely challenging mystery that is the Godhead, the concept of the triune God, one God in three persons. So while it's true that Jesus did not say the exact words, I am God, in Scripture, the Bible makes it very clear who He is. First and foremost, He is God in the flesh. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Surely this is a claim to be God. The Jewish religious rulers certainly understood this in John chapter 10 and verses 22 to, 20, uh, 22 to 33. Excuse me. Let me read. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews, that means the Jewish religious rulers, who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I, tell, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They wanted to stone Jesus for the blasphemy of claiming to be God. In other places, the Bible is consistently clear that Jesus, as the Son of God, is God in the flesh. Consider the Gospel of John's opening statements in John chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 4 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. That's another name for Jesus, Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh, Jesus Christ, God and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Any comments or uh, questions or thoughts to this point?
Okay. So, what about Jesus claims to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ? Clearly, the Lord was not silent about His position as Savior, the predicted Messiah of Israel, and actually of the world. Consider the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You know, you know the story. It's in chapter 4 of John. Uh, Christ comes up to the well. He sits there and he asks her for some water. She's rather sarcastic with him, and he ultimately tells her that the water he would provide would keep one from thirsting again. Let me pick it up in verse 15 of John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that it is in Jerusalem, the place where we one must worship. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. Jesus claimed and he never denied, he never denied being the Messiah. And this was one of the reasons that the Jewish rulers of his day were so antagonistic toward him. And it was because that they understood this, that to proclaim oneself to be the Messiah in and of itself was a claim to be God. The Old Testament is replete with verses that affirm this. Just consider uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 43. In these two verses, 3 and 11, God says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. I, only I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. Any thoughts? Porter. The, the Jewish rulers, Porter says, were well aware and steeped in Scripture. They understood these prophecies and they understood what the Christ would be and who Jesus was claiming to be. They weren't uh, in, uh, in doubt about it. Yes. They even knew the day, actually, and uh, from Daniel. And yet they fought it tooth and nail all the way. What does that say about the human heart? What does it say? From those that who were being trusted 
to be the liaison at that time, the priest, the go-betweens between God and the people. It's a sad state of affairs. The heart is deceitful above all. So, um, what about uh, in the New Testament? We have, uh, before we look, we're going to look at the very name of God here in a minute, but let's consider that numerous uh, verses are found in the New Testament that tell us specifically, specifically Jesus is God and Savior. Paul wrote in Titus uh, verse 13 in his characterization of who Jesus is that He is our great God and Savior. Titus 2, 13 and 14 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Likewise, Peter calls Jesus our God and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, if we were desiring to hear of maybe the greatest witness that there is, we can go to uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 and hear from God the Father Himself. And this is where he is quoting from uh, Psalm 45. Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9 says, but of, the th- excuse me, but of the Son, He, that is the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Wow. Any other comments? Okay. Let's look for a minute. Let's talk about the very name of God. Uh, When Moses was being prepared by God to lead his people, the Jews, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, Moses had a question for God. There in the wilderness at the burning bush, Moses requested to know God's name. And we can read God's reply in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. This is God's clear assertion of his being the self-existent one. Pre-existent, ever-existent, all-existent first cause of all things. This is the meaning that is linked to the title we know as the Tetragrammaton, that uh, Y-H-W-H. You see it in uh, your uh, Bibles as Lord in all capital letters. If we try to insert the presumed uh, verbs, we get the word Yahweh. It's the unspeakable name of God for the religious Jews. And Jesus was never hesitant and never shy about claiming this very name for himself. He often spoke of himself as the I Am, or I Am. And he also frequently used the title Son of Man, again from Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man, this is a laser-focused phrase, a laser-focused name to identify 
Jesus predicted, excuse me, to identify Israel's predicted Messiah. In doing so, in using these two names, Jesus was claiming his identity and showing himself as Israel's God and Savior, which is why the Jews sought to stone him. Let's just look at a few of the I am uh, passages uh, of Jesus. This is just a few. This is where he uses the name I am and applies it to himself. We'll start uh, with John chapter 8, verse 56 to 59. Jesus speaking says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Any thoughts on that passage? What was Jesus claiming? Before Abraham was, I am. This is clearly a reference to Jesus' pre-existence. This is an attribute that only belongs to God. Let's Let's keep going. John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus offering in that passage? Again? Salvation. Salvation. He is off, which is life, eternal life. He's offering a different kind of a life, a spiritual eternal life right there. In Jesus chapter 8, verses uh, 23 and 24, goes, picks it up. And he was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of the world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is Jesus saying he can do? Forgive sins. He's saying I forgive sins. I can forgive sins. Again, another attribute that only belongs to God. And two more. Uh, Jesus, excuse me, John chapter 11. Uh, This is to Martha, of Martha and Mary, and she is somewhat rebuking the Lord as he's coming after Lazarus has died. And she says to him, you know, if you'd have gotten here, Lord, he'd not have died. And this is Jesus' response. He says, uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Jesus claims to be the resurrection from the dead, the life. He is offering eternal life, and it is him. It's it's his life. Um, And finally, we read in John 14, verses 6 and 7. Now, this is in response to Thomas' question, how how can we know the way? Uh, This is in the upper room. You know, Thomas and and Philip, some of these guys get a bad reputation sometimes because they 
they throw out these uh, questions, these devil's advocate questions, you know. But because of them, we get these beautiful scriptures in response that just clear everything up for us. And so Thomas has done that this time with Jesus. And uh, Jesus, uh, John 14, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus makes in this statement his unique claims of exclusivity. Let's, he lets everyone know of his co-equal unity and absolute linkage with God the Father so that any honest reader can see exactly what Jesus is claiming about himself. But what about the skeptic? The one who says, yes, but these are all just claims made in the Bible. How can a person know that this record of Jesus' claims is accurate? How can we know? What would be a good reason? Eyewitnesses as recorded, yes. Anything else? All of the people who saw him were with him and were willing to die for that. Think about what you would die for. How about all the prophecies that were fulfilled? The book gives prophecies, like clearly 25% or more of the Bible is prophetic. Yes? Personal answered prayer. Now that applies to me. At, from a believer's standpoint. But I'm saying that in general, a person can come pick up the Bible and read about these prophecies that have been fulfilled. There's no denying them. And so that we have this answer from God, how do we trust your word? Uh, it's straightforward, bold, and compelling. And I think it b leaves a believer without an excuse. There's no other religious book the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, any others that, that lay out. Uh, prophes prophetic words and th that uh, are completely come to pass. Um, I think that fulfilled prophecy is indeed an affirmation of the scripture. Um, so the God of the Bible boldly declares this very thing in Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. Let me go there. And it says... Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there's no other. I'm God and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He guarantees that his word will be fulfilled. And I would say this, that God's fulfilled prophecies have uh, been shown to authenticate the historical record, not the other way around. And so this applies then to Jesus as well. He claimed to fulfill Scripture. The Bible is accurate and is the source, the sure source, and the authority for any Christian. Further, Jesus made it clear that when he was here in his first coming, that he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning his first advent. And I'm going to give just three examples of Jesus' claims at fulfilling the Scriptures. Let's begin uh, with Luke, chapter 24, uh, verses 44 through 47. 
Now he, Jesus, said to them, this would be to Cleopas and the disciple on the road to Emmaus, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, written about me, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Wouldn't you like to have been there for that Bible study? Um, he specifically states the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is where he was written about. What would that encompass at that point in time? There was no New Testament. That would have been the entirety of the Old Testament. And he says that he's in that all the way through. Uh, let's pick up another. John chapter 5, verses 45 and 46. Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would, have, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Moses. I mean, right here, the Lord Jesus gives Moses complete credit for the authorship of the law. That it would be the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Genesis. And there's no doubt about that. Um, in Mark, it says in uh, chapter 14, verses 61 to 64, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, this is at his kangaroo court uh, trial, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Again, using that guy, name for God. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's directly pointing this man to the, to the book of Daniel and, and saying he's fulfilling that. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. He's quoting, let me just go there, from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, this is Daniel speaking in the Old Testament, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, this was a dream Daniel had, one like a son of man was coming, that's Jesus, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, this is everyone, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So he claimed to fulfill prophecy of the Old Testament. Uh, any thoughts or comments here? Okay, so I think we have a little bit of time, and I wanted to do just a short study uh, in, a, in a section of Scripture that, that uh, gives us the prophesied life and death of Jesus very clearly. And it's in Isaiah, and it's in chapter 53. Now I want to point out that the entire scroll of Isaiah was found within the Dead Sea Scrolls, or the Qumran Scrolls. This was back in 1946 and 47. And these were uh, writings that had been tr transcribed. I think the Essenes did them. 
and uh, they were dated in about a 300-year period. We found them in 1947, but they spanned the time of 200 B.C. to about 100 A.D. So these were, not, uh, these were transcriptions of other writings that they had had. And the book of Isaiah was written around 700 B.C., so that is really not very far. Now when you take those, they took those scrolls, and they, you can compare them to our present-day Bibles, and you can be certain that we have complete accuracy in the Word of God that we carry around with us. So that's very nice. Uh, from the earliest days, that is before Christ's first coming, the Jews applied that chapter of Isaiah to the coming Messiah. However, with its very clear fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, many present-day rabbis and, and uh, Jewish synagogues, they don't touch it. They have carefully avoided reading this passage. Right, Carol? But in, but in Isaiah 53, God has given us details of the life and death of the Messiah, of Jesus. And not only that, He's also made clear reasons and results from Jesus' death. So I'm going to look at, there's 12, it's just 12 verses. I'm going to read each one of them. And beside them, I have put in blue places in the New Testament where the, that prophecy was fulfilled. Yes. Say again. Will do. Better. And so uh, we will then look at this passage from Isaiah. Um, you know, Isaiah 53, it's actually the, it's a response from the Jews that they will have one day after their eyes are opened, when they, when they understand what transpired, and the life of Jesus. And that is going to occur sometime before the second coming of Christ, probably shortly before. So let me just begin Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I put it was fulfilled in John 6.66. That's when the crowds of people that had gathered around to be fed again by Jesus, and they really only came for the food. That's when they became appointed in Him, and they ended up leaving. That's kind of where we are. But basically what this, little, what this verse is saying is that very few people, very few would believe, which is true. Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up, he grew up before him, that is Jesus before the Father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He, was not, he did not come as a royal king. He came as a commoner. And uh, he had very humble uh, and poor beginnings. This is, wouldn't, wouldn't be what you'd expect for the Son of God. But this is how he came. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus was despised, wasn't he? He was rejected. He suffered. And he suffered at the hands of his own people who, he had, who should have been expecting and waiting for him uh, excitedly. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Some, verses will, some Bibles will say cursed. 
You know, even though Jesus would heal many and take the sorrows for others when he was here, yet the Jewish people considered him cursed by God. Why would they consider him cursed by God? Exactly. Because they, they would have looked at Deuteronomy 21, 23, and it says, Cursed is he who hangs on the cross. So it would appear from the onlooker that he was under the curse of God. And so it was. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's fulfilled in John 19, verses 1 through 30. His being cursed, his hanging on a cross. That's true, but it was for a reason. It was for a reason. Our sins, so that we could be healed spiritually and that we could have peace with God. Verse 6 explains further, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God, the Father's will, was that all sin would be laid upon Jesus. He became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. Um, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. This speaks of the silence, Jesus' silence before his accusers, just as recorded in Matthew 27, 12. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? I would say a couple of takeaways from that verse or that he was judged. That is that kangaroo court that the Pharisees had when they were, it was all totally illegal as we've been told before. And yet he was convicted and, uh, and subsequently he was, he was crucified. So he died without having any physical descendants is what that verse is telling us. Verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Fulfilled again in Matthew 27. The f was that verse 9? Okay, yes. Christ, okay, they're telling, he's tell that verse tells us that Christ died right alongside common criminals. But he was placed in a rich man's tomb in his burial. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Even though verse 8 said that Jesus was cut off, that is killed, and he had no physical descendants, this verse says that after being made a sin offering, a guilt offering, that is crucified, Jesus would see his offspring and prolong his days, that is live, meaning that he would rise from the dead and that spiritually he would have many offspring. Verse 11, And as a result of the anguish of his soul, 
He, that is the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. The Father saw Jesus suffering, and he was fully satisfied. By Jesus' sacrificial death, which was in complete obedience to the will of the Father, so that sin could be forgiven. And by Jesus' resurrection life, believers can be justified before God. And finally, verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So it is Jesus is right now exalted by the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because he bore our sins by dying on a cross, and even when he was on that cross dying, he interceded for those who had crucif- were crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I think that's a totally amazing passage. Any, any thoughts or comments? Okay. Uh, Porter, will you close us then in prayer?